Um, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in verse 13 through 16. Um, and here's just a little matter of preface before we, we begin. I'm going to pray. Um, but I just want to say this before we get started. These verses are more than likely, if you spend any time in church whatsoever, any time, something you've heard. Like, I'm not going to, more than likely, tell you anything you haven't heard already. So, what I want to do before we go into our prayer time is ask that you and I and all of us would ask God to, as we go into very familiar verses, um, by the power of His Spirit, reveal to us things that are new and fresh, new emotions, new feelings, new desires for Christ and for His gospel, that um, He would use this text, though it's familiar, to strengthen our, our love for Him as we go into the text today. So um, I'm going to pray and, and just kind of lead you in a time through that where you'll pray for yourself. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for an opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather here and worship. Um, we thank you for our friends today that are here from Georgia. Lord, we thank you for their service that they gave to the church yesterday and even today. Um, we pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, that you would come now by the power of your spirit and you would move in our hearts, that you would reveal truth to us, open up our eyes to see the things of Christ. Lord, that you would um, just be kind to us and gracious to us to let us understand more deeply the gospel. I pray for each one of us, though we're looking at a very familiar text, this would be um, not just a rote exercise, but new and fresh mercies would be shown to us this morning. Lord, I pray for myself, please, God. All the things that I should say, help me say them, and all the things that I shouldn't keep me from them. Help me speak your word with clarity and truth this morning. I just thank you for an opportunity that you would give me to be able to... Um, Preach your word. Thank you so much for that, God. And now here in the next couple, 30 seconds or so, just, just pray for yourself that God would use his word to, to teach you this morning and renew deep affections for Christ. And now, would you pray for those that are beside you, to your left and right, that God would, God would do the same for them. We love you, Father, and we pray all of these prayers in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So let me read the text and then we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in. We're in Matthew 5 at verse 13. It says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand... And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, I've been uh, in ministry now for 10, 12 years. And so as I've been going through ministry, um, having conversations with people about what it means to be a, a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Christ, I've heard... Um, through these conversations, um, interesting ways that we decide to measure spiritual maturity. Um, I remember one time I was like worship preferences and things. I remember one time I was at one of Christie's family's get-togethers, and um, I'm generally pretty quiet there. Um, and so whenever we were there, um, they had they came to find out or come to find out that I was in the ministry and that I was a pastor. And so the first question they said is, "Hey, uh, at your church, do, do you wear blue jeans on Sunday?" Um, and I was like, well, 
Yeah, why? Why do you wear blue jeans on Sunday? Shouldn't you dress up? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you look really nice for Jesus? Um, do you all sing those 7-Eleven songs? Um, and if you don't know what that is, that just means like you have seven words and you sing it 11 times over and over and over. Um, that's their, their nice term for, for what they call praise courses. Um, and so I'm trying, to, I'm trying to answer these questions in a very graceful way. Um, you know, Christy's family, I love her. I, I, all this is, I asked permission, by the way, that I could do all this, so don't feel like she's going to kill him. Um, I, I was... I was <laughs> trying to answer these questions pretty graciously, but it, it seemed to, as I kept going on in the conversation, that um, to them, to the people I was having a conversation with, spiritual maturity was measured by the way that you um, go into worship on Sunday mornings, the preferences that you have. And, and we all do this um, with a number of different things. Sometimes we do it with, the, with how much we serve, like we serve, 10 hours a week and 15 hours a week. How much do you serve? I've memorized the book of James. What have you memorized? Like we measure, we're not just like that where we would never say, no, if you, uh, if you don't wear jeans, maybe we wouldn't do it here. But we do that in some senses, whether we read the Bible every day and we cast judgment on those who don't. If we find ourselves more in community and more in community group than other people, if they live up to our list of rules and they don't. So we all kind of measure spiritual maturity in, with different interesting ways. But um, and that's not necessarily, I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I'm just saying it's, it's interesting the way it happens. But um, what we're going to do here in this text, um, we're going to remember we're coming off of the Beatitudes. And we've talked about this now for four weeks about uh, what the Beatitudes are and the importance of the Beatitudes. But the main thing that we can take from the Beatitudes, if you haven't been here, is um, Christ is telling us that because of the gospel, because of your belief in Jesus, your faith in Christ, these things that are in the Beatitudes are what's true of you. And so because these things are what's true of you, um, and we've moved in from lastly from persecution, if you're, if you're a Christ follower, you should be a peacemaker, which leads into persecution. You should be one that, that shares your faith with others. You should be the one that does evangelism. And when that happens, you will have persecution in your life. There's no other way about it. And so based on all these things that being poor in spirit and mourning over our sin, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, we're moving into this next set of um, verses where it's a continuation. I mean, Christ is still explaining what it means to be a follower, just like he did in the Beatitudes in these verses. And so these verses here, these very familiar verses, are just a continuation of the Beatitudes. We don't need to miss that. There are two what we call indicative statements. They are indicating things that are true about you. These things aren't well. Sometimes I are. I am. Sometimes I'm not. These are these things are true of you if you are a follower of Christ based on the fact that we've had these Beatitudes. Let me show you two little connections just so you know that um we saw last week as we were going through the the beatitudes that in verse 10 the very eighth beatitude that he's still speaking in third person blessed are those who are persecuted and then in verse 11 he shifts to second person where he uses the you and he says you blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you now we're going to see as we go into what's the, the verses for salt and light, he continues in that same idea. He's continuing in second person. You are the salt of the earth. As a matter of fact, this you, this very first you in 13, is very emphatic. He's, he's talking to the people that he's, that he's men, preaching to and he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. Now, what's important to know is that he's talking to people that are his disciples and he's unpacking for them the gospel of the kingdom which we've seen in 423 he went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom and now he's talking about what it means to be a follower of christ and he's saying you are the salt of the earth so we can see that because the second person continues from verse 12 into verse 13 this is still a continuation of the teachings of the beatitudes um and the next thing is Verses 10 through 12 are telling us what is the world's response to us as we live a life of Christianity. We are um, living um, a life of, uh, for Christ. We're, we're, we're telling people about Jesus. We're trying to be peacemakers. And the world's response to us is persecution. That's 10 through 13. And now as we're going into 13 through 16, Jesus is going to try to... Um, flip the scenario and not talk about the world's response to us, but yet talk about our response now to the world in light of the persecution coming to us. So when he says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, the context is still of the Beatitudes. It's just now we're talking about our response 
back to the world in light of their response to us with the persecution that's coming. So these these verses are a continuation of the Beatitudes and telling us how Christians are now supposed to live in the world. And there's, he's going to do this with two indicative statements, two, verse, two st- verses that are telling you this is what's true of you, indicating what's true of you. And they're very obvious. There's nothing like a big mystery here. You can pick them out yourself. Um, but two metaphors of being a disciple, two metaphors of being a disciple. The first one, I'm just going to go ahead and let, let you know what they are so you can go ahead and write them down and you can listen to me. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Pretty obvious, all right? So that's the rest of the sermon. So hopefully um, you can still stay with me because I've got some stuff I think that's going to be helpful for you as we go into it. All right, so first, you are the salt of the earth. That's the first metaphor of, of being a disciple that Jesus is going to use as he's talking to us about what it is and what it looks like for us to be a disciple. And responding to the world, but not just a disciple. And and we're not just going to try to measure discipleship by funny little things about the way we dress on Sundays or if we like praise courses, 7-Eleven music, or whether we like hymns. But instead, we're going to do, we're going to look at what Jesus says. Jesus is going to give us an indication of what it means to be a disciple. And here he's going to say, if you're my disciple, you're the salt of the earth. If you're my disciple, you're the light of the world. All right, so... First one is, you're the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus here is wanting to keep us from really two dangers that can happen. Um, these two dangers are, are, you know, kind of big words. They're not too hard to understand. But basically, they're syncretism and they're sectarianism. Syncretism is that um, you just indulge completely in the world. You, The belief system of the world and the th- things that they hold to, you become so much of the world that their belief systems and your belief systems just kind of meld into one and it all becomes kind of one little deal. And Jesus is in, this, in these verses is trying to keep us from syncretism. He wants us to be in the world but not necessarily let our beliefs um, just fall, kind of like Solomon when he did with his wives, like not, not just become so much a part of it that we give ourselves into the world and we become syncretists. But he's also wanting to keep us from the other danger, which is sectarianism, which is, oh, the world's evil and crazy and everybody you know, that has whatever is all crazy, so I'm just going to withdraw like a monk and I'm going to stay out and, and away from everybody because everybody's evil. And so he's trying to keep us away from that as well. So we're not, he's want, not wanting us to be worldly-minded and secularized, but he's also not wanting us to be um, isolationists, where we're just going to stay away from everybody. But instead... Being salt and light means that we are in the world <clears throat> making disciples, but not going into sin. But at the same time, there's, there's a line here where we're going to, um, like Christ, become a missionary into our society. Get to know people that, that are around you and get to a point where, according to our conscience and according to the scriptures, we're not going to sin, but we are going to be a part of the world. But we're not going to run away from people that, that have that are going to have problems because, listen, the world is broken and people around you are going to have sin, including you. And you can't just run away from them just because they have these major, huge problems and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. I'm just going to let you kind of deal with that. We can't, we, the, as we talked about last week, we're peacemakers. We're peacemakers. All right, so there's really three ideas as I was studying this week that salt is wanting to... Um, that Jesus is using this, this illustration of salt that he's wanting us to, to get. There's really three ideas that we're going we're gonna to try to understand about what salt means. Um, if you remember, um, and hopefully you know this, about 2,000 years ago, they didn't really have anything like freezers. Um, they, they had to preserve meat in a certain way, and they used salt. So there's, these three ideas about salt are that it's a preservative, that it's seasoned or it flavors things, and the next one is that it also causes thirst. All right, so the first one, it preserves. So here, when he says, you're the salt of the earth, Jesus is wanting Christians to be the, the preserving impact, to, to be the thing in society that preserves culture and keeps it from becoming as depraved as it can be. It's a good thing that Christians are in society. It's a good thing that Christians are doing art in society. It's a good thing that Christians are politicians and are businessmen in society. The fact that Christians are in all areas and sectors of society, um, society is being kept from just going to be, from going as depraved as it can be. So there's a sense in which that he wants us, Christ has told us to be um, 
the kind of people that are preserving society because of its decay. Like if you don't rub salt on meat, it'll decay. And if you don't rub Christians into society, then it will decay. Now here's the tricky thing. Keeping the world from decay, from keeping the world from sinful behavior is not the gospel. Don't miss that, okay? He is saying that you're the salt of the earth because he does want us to preserve. But if all we do is just try to preserve things, if all we try to do is just try to get people to conform to our laws and conform to our mindsets, that's not the gospel. There is a sense in which we want to preserve. It's a good thing that we have men that are Christians, that are politicians, um, fighting for for rights for children and things like this. But... um, We don't want, here's the first kind of thing, is we don't want the world to think that if they conform to a set of certain rules or if they stop doing things, that they're right with God. Because that's not the gospel. Um, Salt preserves society. We as Christians preserve society. But trying to get the world to conform to us, to our behavior, is in a sense a good thing. Because we do want to hold fast in society and keep them from as depraved as they could be, but that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. That's not the message that we have. Um, but here's another little interesting thing. As Christians, it the gospel is the basis and the means by which Christians live a spirit-filled life, which lets us therefore go and be the preservers of the culture. So, Christian, you have to have the gospel. You have to have the gospel in your life. You have to have put your faith in Christ and know that that's the basis, but not only the basis, but the means that's going to help you live a spirit-filled life. And based on that, you can go into culture and you can see preservation happen in society. But that's not the only goal as Christians. Also, our goal is to speak the gospel itself, to, to tell people about how they can become followers of Jesus, how they can save themselves from the eternal conscious torment that awaits them if they don't put their faith in Christ. So we don't want for society to think that um, Christians' right standing is also kept by um, keeping the world from decay. Like we don't want, as Christians, if I say, Christians, you're the salt, now go be salt. And as you preserve society, God's going to be so pleased with you because you've preserved society. He will be, but he's pleased with you, or your right standing is based on the fact that you put your faith in Christ, not that you're just being a preservative. So he wants us to be a preservative. Salt does keep decay from happening. Christians are to keep from decay from happening. But as we're doing that, we don't make that the goal. We do that in order to be able to share the gospel with people. We do that in order to share the gospel with people. So the first thing is, is that we are a preservative. All right, so the next thing is this. Um, We also salt does is that it adds flavor Um, and we see that in this verse you're the salt of the earth but if salt has lost its taste how shall it saltiness be restored so we can see that there's a sense in which salt as just i don't really eat a whole lot of salt i'll never think about it but some people you know they just salt their fries salt their eggs salt their chicken salt their watermelon whatever like they they just salt everything that they can think of Um, i've seen it Um, and so one of the things that he's also trying to say is this Um, Right before he left, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, this is what this is the message that he told to his disciples in Acts one. Just listen to this. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That the father is fixed um, by, by his authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we as Christians, we have a season or a flavor that we have into society. And this season or this flavor that we add like salt does into society is that we are adding happiness or joy or gladness in God to society. It should be evident. It should be completely evident to people around you if you're a Christian that you just exude an attractional joy that they cannot comprehend. Christians are to add flavor. We are not to be where there is a a time and there is a season where we do have times of, of feeling down. We do have times of joy on the whole, because we have the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. He he has called us his witness. He has given us power. I mean, we have power 
unbelievable power that we can walk by the Spirit throughout life where we can live a Spirit-filled life, seeing sin be killed in our life constantly and being able to have a message that is not of our own, not of our own power, but when we share the Gospel, the Holy Spirit is given to us. There is a deep, rooted, abiding joy in our life. And so as we, as we go, we should have this joy where people see that. We are seasoning the world. The world's not seasoning us with their sinful behavior. We're seasoning them with letting them see joy in Christ. And when they see that, then they want to know what it is. So you need to, you need to definitely, and, I, and I'm, you know, this, this is something I'm preaching to myself. We all need to walk around and go throughout life like we really have the Holy Spirit in our life. And we're really going to add happiness and gladness in Christ to this world. So that's the second idea. And the third idea is thirst. One of the things that salt does is make you thirsty. If you go out and swim in the ocean um, and you get a little water in your mouth, you're just like, ah, this is terrible, and you need some good water right, right away. And so one of the things that it does is it makes you thirsty. And as I was reading through some of my commentaries, one of the questions, I think it was James Boyce, he said this, he asked this question, do you make anyone thirsty for Jesus Christ? Do you make anyone thirsty for Jesus Christ? If you're salt and you're around people and you're supposed to be salty, then you are to be making them. I know it's the Holy Spirit, but as you live your life, there should be people around you that are finding themselves thirsty for Jesus Christ. Are you living your life in such a way that you're causing other men and other women around you to say, I want Jesus more than anything else in this world? Are you... Thirsty? Are you salty enough to cause thirst around the, around the people? This is what John, Jesus says in John 7. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water. So there's a sense in which we can say, If you're thirsty, come to Christ. But are you living your life in such a way where people are becoming thirsty? You're awakening thirst for Jesus in their life. You're going to know that whether you, should, whether you are or not. No, don't miss this, okay? This is really important. Notice the end of verse 13. He says, If it's lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Listen to this. It is no longer good for anything. Speaking of salt. Now, salt is the metaphor for Christians. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now this, this is where, not me, I'm going to be the mouthpiece, but I'm just going to say in a, in a way that Jesus said it. So this might get a little offensive, but don't take you know, offense to me. This is just Jesus. This has given us an illustration of people who have lost their saltiness. And this is what he's saying. Jesus is telling Christians, if you're not preserving, if you're not seasoning, if you're not causing thirst, if you're not giving flavor into society, if you're not doing these things, then you are useless. That's what he's saying. You're useless. You should just be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The implications are that if you aren't being sought into this world, that you're no longer good for anything and that you should be thrown out and destroyed. So what Christ is doing here is speaking out right against what's known as today as easy believism. This nominal Christianity. This, I'm going to believe. Cause, and and this, is, this is where I think there's a little bit of an epidemic maybe in, in the, the Christian world today. That we may not have a, a, a good understanding of what the gospel is. We might not have a good understanding of what it is. I, I know that you know, and like I know, like everybody that went to VBS back whenever you were in, you know, third and fourth grade, and you made the decision for Christ, just like me, um, that hell's hot, and I don't want to go there, and it's scary, and, you know, I know that the reason why I'm going there is because of sin, and so the reason why I don't want to go there um, is because it's so evil and, and terrible, so what's the way I don't have to go there? Oh, Jesus, okay, well then, 
I want Jesus. I mean, because if that's the way I don't have to go suffer in hell forever, then sign me up. That's what I want. And I think that we understand that part. And that I'm not trying to say that's not the gospel. I know that there's a real sense in which whenever you tell people the gospel, you want them to know the implications of not believing the gospel, which is eternal conscious torment. But I think that what we think is, in some cases, the gospel is escape from hell, believe in Jesus, and then everything's fine. But the gospel is, is much more than that. It's also becoming a disciple of Jesus. Becoming a disciple of Jesus. Walking with him for the rest of your life. And if there's, a, if there's this idea where I can just believe in, you know, that a man named Jesus died on the cross and ask him in my heart and then I'm all good and then, you know, that's it. Then that's not becoming a disciple of Jesus. And that's not really having a good understanding of the gospel. Um, Matt Chandler, he's a pastor in Texas, was kind of talking about this and he thinks... Um, and I think he's onto something here. He said the problem that, of, of what most people think is that um, the idea to fix that is that people just need more information. We just need to pump them with more systematic. We need to pump them with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Pump them with the doctrine of man and just more information. And we're, we're giving people more information, but we're not ever seeing life change. Um, why are we giving more people more information to obey when they can't obey what they already know? So the idea or the... the, the the way to solve this is not necessarily give more obedience, but talk about what it means to be a... Not give them more information, but talk about what it means to be a disciple to create obedience, to let the Holy Spirit do His work. And that's where we're going to start seeing a better understanding of the gospel. Um, we're going to start understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. We're going to start understanding what it means that the Beatitudes have happened in our life. You are supposed to mourn for your sin. You are going to extend mercy to those who have sinned against you. You are going to be pure in heart. You are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You are now declared holy. You are now declared pure. You are, as a Christian, a peacemaker. Not, well, I guess I should evangelize. You are someone who is an evangelizer. You are going to be persecuted. And based on that, now that you are a disciple, you're salt and you're light. That's who you are as a Christian. And I think that is, if we can get our minds set on what the real gospel is, not that it's just trying to escape from something, but instead that God has said that you are a Christian. Now that you are a Christian, you are salt and light. You are a disciple of mine. Don't just think that becoming a Christian is escaping from something. It's also becoming a disciple of Jesus and, and living a life that follows him for the rest of your life. What would that mean? What would that look like? What would have to change in your life to become a disciple of Christ, not just a convert? Because what Jesus is saying here, as he says, you, you're, you're not good for anything. You're supposed to be thrown out and trampled under, under feet. He's saying no to this idea of easy believism, nominal Christianity, and saying a transformed life is what's supposed to follow after faith in Christ. A transformed life. And so, when conviction of sin comes, do you brush it off because you know if you do it, you're just already forgiven? Or is there a hatred for sin in your life and a desire to pursue Christ at all costs, to kill sin at all costs? When an, when an opportunity comes to share Jesus with someone, is it, well, if I don't do it, it's no big deal. You know, they'll probably get converted anyway. Or is it, they don't know Christ and they're separated from Him and the fact that that's the case kills me, and I want to see them come to know Christ. And remember, listen, don't forget this. How much you kill sin and how much you evangelize does not determine your right standing with Jesus. It gives evidence to the fact that you are a disciple of Christ. It gives evidence to the fact that you are now not going to just claim this nominal Christianity, but that you are going to pursue Him with everything you have. It gives evidence to the fact that you are salt and that you are light. So that's the first one, is that you are salt. Now, the second one is that you are the light of the world. What does the light of the world mean? What does that mean? There's probably a lot of obvious answers, but let's, let's 
let Matthew kind of inform us a little bit based on some of the things that we saw. Look over um, back in chapter 4, verse 16. In 4.16, you'll remember that this is one of the prophecies from Isaiah where Matthew was speaking of Christ and he was saying that um, in verse 16 it says, The people dwelling in deep darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, for them a light has dawned. And this is talking about Jesus. There's, it's saying that there is... People, there are people that are Gentiles. I'm getting. I'm still getting. You know, used to how to conjugate the verb to be. 36 years now, I still can't do it. None of y'all noticed it now that you did. All right. Anyway, verse 16, verse 16 says that there's the, there are these Gentiles that are in deep darkness, and a light has dawned. The Messiah. Now, Matthew's writing to people who are Jewish, who are acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. So as he points back to Isaiah, and he's saying the people dwelling in deep darkness have seen a great light, and he's saying that great light is Jesus. All those who are hearing this for the first time who are Jewish are starting to make the connections that Jesus is that great light. Therefore, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the promised one, and Jesus is the one who's going to be the Savior of the world. And, that, and he told us that, I think it's 121, that he, Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. So the first thing that we can take from this is that a great darkness, a great light has come in deep darkness. This is implying that we, we live in a dark world. We live in a dark world. We live where depravity is rampant. That's why it's saying that Jesus is the great light. And now he's saying that you are the light. The first implication is that this world is dark. It's not as good as we think we... It's not as good as, it, as we might think it is. People are not generally good people. Um, people are, are all depraved. All of us. And so because we live in this world, it's imperative that we understand what it means to be light. Because the world is dark. All right, now listen to this. I want you to hear that second verse, the second word there, verse 14. This is really, really key. It says, you are the light of the world. It says, you are the light of the world. It's not you have the light of the world. Now, I know in a sense that's true. You have the light. It just 416 just told us Jesus is the light. If you put your faith in Jesus, you have Jesus in you, and therefore you have the light that you can go ahead and tell people. But Christ, as he's teaching this, chooses to use, use the word are. You are the light of the world. So that's, that's really important for us to, to start thinking about, that we are the light of the world. The church is, in a sense... Though Jesus is the light of the world, the church itself also is, in a sense, the light of the world. Now, what is the business of the church as the light? What, what is the business of the church? Um, let me read a quote to you. It says, Now, since it is the business of the church to shine for Jesus, it should not permit itself to be thrown off course. It should not permit itself to be thrown off course. The primary duty of the church is the spreading of the message of the gospel. There, there is a sense in which we do some things. Like we preserve, we, we flavor, we give happiness. We, we do some of those things in salt. But whenever we are doing that thing as salt, then we, we understand that that connects to light now. We are the light of the world. And the business of the church, the primary duty of the church, as we, as we shine out the light, is that we are the, the people that are going to spread the message of the gospel. All right, so let's just, let's just take this for a second, all right? If you're a Christian, you are the church. It doesn't matter if you go to such and such Baptist church or you come to this church. If, you are, if you're a Christian, you are part of the church universal. Therefore, you can't just say, well, since the church is the one that's going to share the gospel, I'm going to pray that those that are the church do it. You know, I, I know I'm in the church, but I'm going to pray that the church as a whole does it, which you should, but you should also individualize it as well and start thinking, what does that mean for me then? Like, what does that mean since I'm a part of the church and the primary duty of the church is the spreading of the message of the gospel? You're in the church. Your primary duty as a member of the church is the spreading of the gospel. How often do you find yourself as the person that is spreading the message of the gospel? Like that's what you're supposed to do. That's your primary duty as a, as a Christ follower is to tell people about Jesus. If, if it's something that maybe you do once a year or maybe you never haven't, then you're not fulfilling the primary duty of the church. You 
are. You don't just have, you are the light of the world. That's really key to understand. It goes completely against everything if you are the light that you don't shine. All right, now he, here Matthew records, but Jesus is going to do something for us. He's going to give us two illustrations about what it means to be the light of the world. Um, two luminaries, if you will. Um, two, uh, two examples. And you can see it in verse 14 and verse 15. We're going to take the first one and then the second one. Um, you are the light of the world. And then he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So just picture um, it's dark and you're out in the country and if you're way out in the country where it, where it really starts getting dark and you know that there's a certain city somewhere um, north, south, east, west, in whatever direction, if you look in that direction, you can see that from there becomes a little bit of a glow from that city. Um, even back 2,000 years ago when they didn't have you know, street lights and big, huge skyscrapers, there was still a sense in which cities would emit some kind of light. And Jesus is taking that and he's saying, you are a city on a hill. It cannot, your light cannot be hidden. Um, so the first thing that we want to understand as he talks about the city on the hill is that you are visible. Like whether you want to admit it or not, whether you realize it or not, since you are the light of the world, you are visible. This is, um, this is important as you go through life because sometimes we think as Christ followers that whenever we're kind of walked away from Jesus or we're not going to have um, a time where we're going to really follow after Christ, we think that we're not really visible. Like, it's okay if I'm not going to live for Jesus right now. I hide over here where nobody can see me and I'm not really visible right now. But what he's saying is, that's insane. Like, there's not ever a time where you're not shining. You are shining. You're always shining. You're a city set on a hill. You, if a city is set on a hill, it can't be hidden. There's not a time where you can just retreat for three months into sin and then say, I'm going to come back. Or there's not a time where you know you're supposed to do something, but you can't. You are always shining. You are a city set on a hill. All can see you, and you are visible. The next illustration is in 15, and it says this, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. So the first thing is, is that you're visible and you're always shining. You're always shining. There's not a point where your light goes off and then your light comes on. You're always shining. But here's the next thing is, are you radiant? Are you radiant that you're filling up? The next one is the lamp in a room. Look what, look what he says here. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. So consider someone lights something and they put it in the room and they just put a big basket over it. If the basket's on top of it, the light doesn't stop shining. The light's still shining. So you are still shining as a Christian, even if, if you're trying to, to cover it up. You're, you're always going to be shining. But what he's saying is, you don't do that and put a basket on top of it. Instead, you put it on a stand and it gives light into the entire house. So this is a, a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. This is what he's saying about being a lamp in a room. He said, it is God who causes regeneration. However, it is our responsibility to shine for Jesus Christ so that others will see his salvation. We have a responsibility to show the Christ-like life of light to those around us. It is your responsibility and it is my responsibility to always show the Christ-like life to people around us. There's not ever going to be a time where you aren't shining. You are the city that people need. You are the light that's shining. So don't, don't put a basket on top of it. We're not going to sing the song. I know you're thinking about it. Um, <laughs> the light never ceases to shine. There's not a place where you can go where it's not going to be shining, but there is a sense in which you might determine with your life how much is going to be seen. But the truth of it is, is that you can't not shine. Yes, I did that. I did put two negatives together. You can't not shine if you're a follower of Christ. You are shining. So where are you placing yourself? Where are you placing yourself in the room? Are you shining so that all the house can see? Or are you finding yourself under a basket? Just shining to, you, to yourself under that basket? Maybe just shining to a couple friends that you've invited to come under your little basket? Or are you getting up on the stand and shining to as many people that you can? Because it seems, it just seems as we survey 
the scope of Christianity in America. There's a bunch of little baskets all over the floor, and we're all hiding underneath them. Now, this is huge. This is really, really huge, because in 16, Jesus is going to let us see the instrument of light, the means by which light shines most brightly. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, and here it is, so that they may see your good works. All right, this is, this is huge. This is really huge. So that they may see your good works. So the means by which your light is going to shine the most brightly to this world is your good works. Your good works are going to be the thing that shine out. Um, it is when you're honest at your job. It's when you don't make the comment that's going to put somebody down. It's whenever you desire to keep your minds pure. It's whenever you assist those that are in the church and out of the church when they need help. Um, it's whenever we as Christians, um, our marriage statistics start looking better than just the world's. It's when we as Christians, our debt statistics start looking better than the world's. It's when we as Christians um, find ourselves not looking like the world when it comes to lust and pornography, but instead um, pursuing Christ where we want purity in our life. It's our good deeds. Now, um, we, if, we, if we hear this wrong, you're going to think that your good deeds are like a little box that you've got to check off. I've got to be honest. I've got to do that. I've got to do that. Check, check, check. Did that. That's who I am. I, I finally did it. But listen, as, as, as Jesus is telling us here, you are the light of the world. He's not telling you that you are the light of the world in order for you to make yourself a little list of deeds, check the things off and say, okay, um, I did those things. Now I'm all good. We don't need to think of ourselves as light as something we do. Instead, we need to think of ourselves as light as who we are. There's such a big difference in that. Because if you think of light as something you do, and you think of good deeds as the means that's going to do that, then you're going to make sure you do one good deed a week or month or six months, whatever your conscience allows, and you're just going to, whenever it's time to do it, you're going to go down there to the place, you're going to do that good deed, you're going to check it off the box, you're going to pat yourself on the back on the way out, and you're going to be like, yes, I'm a good person, and I shone the light today. But we don't want you, and Christ doesn't want you, to think of yourself, of the light, as something that you do. Rather, it's who you are. And there's a huge difference. It means that because I am the light, I find deep passions within me to go care for people. Not because I have to check off a box, but instead because I care about people. I care about doing these things. I can't not do these things. And when I go down there, I don't leave check, like patting myself on the back saying, oh, I did that, now I feel good. I leave having made deep, lasting friendships and I can't wait to go back again. Or I'm inviting them out for coffee. I'm inviting them out to... Um, to my house or whatever, they're becoming a part of my life and I'm finding myself doing good deeds because it's who I am, not because it's what I have to do. There's a huge difference between those two things. So Christian, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. It's not just a, uh, a good deed. Here, here's what I mean. Um, I was... About two weeks ago, maybe it was three Sundays ago, I, I've got four children, and my oldest two, uh, seven and five, almost seven and five, um, have just developed within them a deep, deep, deep love for the show um, Extreme Home Makeover. We just call it Move That Bus at the house. Um, but they love Move That Bus, love it. And so there was one show where... Um, it was really sad. There was a teenage girl that was texting on the way to school and she had an accident and she passed away. And so the parents instead turned that tragedy into something really positive and they've decided to go around to all 50 states pre, uh, teaching, lecturing, whatever you want to call it, um, giving rallies at high schools, trying to get students all over the, all 50 states to sign you know, a pledge that they won't text and drive at the same time. And so uh, my daughter, this past weekend like wrote out, I brought it with me, but I don't think I have it with me, um, brought to me a pledge, like big, huge blue writing all over. And it's, Daddy, I, I want you to promise that you won't 
uh, text while driving. And then on the back side, she wrote, misspelled the word signature and put a little box and a check that I need to do. And I need, like, I'm supposed to sign it if I agree to do that. Never text again. Um, and so here's the idea. I can just look at that as that's something I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it for her. JC, I did that for you. But instead, the idea is not just I'm going to do something because she wants me to do it. Instead, it's who I am. I love my children. Who I am is a father that loves his children who can't imagine doing things, not just whether I sign something or I text and I'm driving, but on the whole, I want to do things for them, not because I have to, but, but, but because it's who I am. I am their father. I love them. It's who I am. And so as Christians, we're not salt because we have to be. We're not light because we have to be. Instead, we're salt and light because it's who we are. It's because it's who we get to be. There's a huge difference. And so as we come off the teachings of the Beatitudes and we're seeing that it's our good works that are going to be the biggest light and shining before men. We want the world to see these good works. We want the world to see these good works. Now I'm going to confuse you just for a second and I'm going to solve it a few weeks later. But let's, let's go ahead and confuse you really fast as we go into a closing. Because I want us to already, if you're already ahead of me, you're going to ask yourself, what the world about chapter 6, 1 then? Because read, read this again. So that they may see your good works. 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Okay. Bud, you just confused me. It seems that one verse is saying that you're supposed to do works, good works in order to be seen. And the other is saying, never do good works in order to be seen. Well... I'm not going to answer it completely because I want you to be excited about 6-1. But, and that's going to be a few weeks from now, but here's a little bit of an answer. Here's a little bit of an answer, all right? The rest of verse 16 is the answer. And this is, this is the whole answer. This is what all of life is about. That they may see your good works, and here it is, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The goal of your life is that you have a reckless pursuit of the glory of Jesus in your life. You are all about magnifying the glory of Jesus to every single person you can. So, as you do good works, if you are all about the glory of you, well then, yeah, you're not pursuing it in the way that it should be done. But, as you do good works... Your goal is, I want to magnify the glory of Jesus in front of everyone so that as they see and as they understand and as they begin to get a picture of the beauty of the cross, of the beauty of the gospel, of the beauty of his resurrection, the beauty of Jesus and all the worship that he is due, the good works are just a means that drive them to that end, the glory of Jesus. That is what all of this is about. It's not intended, this verse 6.1 is not to, um, it's not decreeing anonymity. It's not decreeing anonymity. 6.1 is forbidding showiness for certain and trying to get the glory yourself. But this verse in 16 is not decreeing anonymity. If it's decreeing anonymity, then how are they going to know it's Jesus is the, is the reason why we're supposed to get, who, and who we're supposed to give glory to? So they know who we are, but as they know who we are, they don't say, oh, Fudd, you're so great, or oh, Cameron, you're so awesome, or oh, fill in the blank, you're so awesome. They look at you and they say, Jesus is awesome because of you. You are not that great, as a matter of fact, but you're pointing me to Jesus who is unbelievable. Look at the glory of Jesus and His gospel that He would come and save sinners. That's the point of being salt and light. To magnify the glory of Jesus and the glory of our Father who is in heaven and that they would 
want Christ and pursue after Christ because we've been salt and light in their lives. So are you salt and light? Are you pursuing with everything inside of you the glory of Jesus? You are salt. You are light. You don't get a choice here if you're a Christ follower. And so, where do you need to seek repentance in your life where you're not pursuing the the glory of Christ? Where did you start out well and you gave up too fast? Where were you doing great and it got difficult and you just stopped because you know what sanctification is? You know what the process of sanctification is the rest of your life? At justification you become a Christian the rest of your life, you know what it is? It's difficult and it's a long process. Where did you give up too fast? We're going to go into a response time and I just want you to think, pray, Repent, confess, and worship. Confess places that you know that you're not living for the glory of Christ. Confess places that you know that you're not being salt and light. Confess places that you know that you could shine out the light of Christ better. Whether it's in your school, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your home life with your spouse or your family. Wherever it is. And as you feel the comfort of the Spirit and the forgiveness of Christ because of Jesus dying on the cross, as you feel and experience these things, stand and worship with us. Singing out to Him and proclaiming to Him how glorious He is that He would save us because the gospel itself is the, is the means by which we're saved and it's also the basis by which we are sanctified. It's, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day that we are in a right standing with Jesus now because of his death on the cross, not because I've kept law, not because I've done these things or I haven't done these things, but because of Jesus dying on the cross and stand and worship him because of it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we can come here and study. And I pray that for all of us, as we consider our lives and we consider whether we're living for the glory of Christ in our lives, if there's places that we know we're not, that we would confess and repent. And we would know that our right standing is not based on behavior, but on the gospel. And as we realize that, that we would give you the glory that you're due. We would stand and worship you with our entire life. Not just as we sing, but as we walk out of here. As we go serve. As we go love our neighbor. Be with us now as we worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.